Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Uh, the long-awaited French election is over, and Emmanuel Macron has emerged as uh, the victor, the president-elect of the Republic of France. And to break down what this means, uh, I want to bring in Maxime Sabahi, Euro-area economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, coming to us from uh, London. And Maxime, the, the first part has been won, which is the presidency, but there is a long road ahead for president-elect uh, Macron. And perhaps this is reflected in part by the action in the markets that we're seeing today with some of the enthusiasm uh, apparently being tempered. I mean, you can see that the, the euro is, is, is coming off a little bit and declining versus the, the dollar just a touch. So, Maxime, what are the biggest challenges that President-elect Macron faces going forward? Well, the first, uh, hello from London, the first big challenge is actually to unify a country that is, uh, uh, has been very disunified by this campaign. Um, the, the first hurdle that he's facing is actually the next election. This is not a two-round election, it's a four-round election. The next one is the parliamentary election in June 11 and 18. And there's nothing much a French president can do without the parliament, without the National Assembly. So we'll, he will have to secure parliamentary support first in order to... Uh, implement and to deliver on his campaign promises. I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about the current state of the French economy. I'll give you the numbers. Uh, mainland uh, unemployment is 9.7%. Total unemployment, 10%. Uh, you have prices that are increasing. I think the latest producer price uh, index was up 2.9%. And you also have a, an economic uh, picture where you have a contracting uh, economy. W what can be done to forestall these problems in the uh, French economy? So ju just to make this clear, the, econo the French economy is not contracting, it's actually uh, growing. Um, it has slowed down a little bit in the first quarter, but the growth rate remains positive. So it is an economy that is doing better, but that is far from being good. As you mentioned, unemployment remains high. Uh, by some measures, it's still above 10%. Uh, the economy is actually growing at a, at a too slow pace to bring down unemployment. And that's the challenge for Macron. He needs to kickstart the economy. He needs to make sure that the domestic factors are get actually stronger, I'm thinking about investment, for example, to make sure that the economy is growing at a fast that is a a fa um, pace that is quick enough to finally bring down unemployment. That's his first challenge. And he actually promised to bring unemployment down from 10% actually to 7% at the end of his mandate in 2022. I would just look, just to mention, I just looking, I was using the GDP deflator quarter over quarter down 0.1%. Nominal GDP uh, up 0.6%, uh, so just to give that context. Yeah. Well, and um, uh, real GDP obviously up by 0.3% over the first quarter, which is a bit slower than, than the last quarter, uh, which was at 0.5%. Uh, but it's still an economy that is, again, growing. It's not just because uh, of domestic factors. If you look at the Eurozone economy, it's actually doing pretty well. It actually grew at a stronger pace in 1Q than in the US. So France is benefiting from the outside environment, from a good regional momentum. Uh, but again, what is missing is uh, the domestic factors and is the fact that 
that the recovery is playing in slow motion so far. Well, uh, when people were talking about the French elections, they talked increasingly about the populist risk uh, to the euro area's existence. And while some are possibly saying that that risk has been reduced uh, somewhat by this recent uh, election, how much have people shifted their concern now to Italy and what is going on there and the the possibility of sort of a repeat of some of the concerns that we've seen uh, over the past few weeks? So you're right in saying, actually, if you look at the top four economy in the in the eurozone, Italy is probably the, the weakest link. Uh, Italy is uh, is the country where the um, economic outlook is the weakest, and also where your skepticism is at its highest. Uh, more than half of the population of Italy, if you look at the polls, uh, think that uh, an exit from the eurozone is a good idea, and uh, growth is much much lower than in France. Um, unemployment is higher, uh, debt to GDP ratio is much higher. So if you compare France. France to Italy, actually France uh, looks pretty pretty good. Um, the political situation in Italy is much more shaky than in France. Uh, we don't know where the next election is, is going to take place, probably at the end of the year or maybe next year. Um, and again, with Euroscepticism so high, combined with very high unemployment, uh, you get actually a political terrorist that is, that is more important, in my opinion, than in France, especially now that Emmanuel Macron won the election. The uh, French uh, industrial sector, uh, obviously competing globally, but uh, as you mentioned, within the Eurozone, what about the the, the French competition with Germany? Is this going to be a, a factor for Macron? Well, he hasn't really campaigned on, on uh, playing on this, on the competition with, with Germany. Obviously, Germany is a country that uh, a lot of French politicians are looking at because uh, you have this economy that shares uh, the, the same currency and that is yet doing so well compared to France. So um, we know that he is going to travel to Berlin over the next days, that he's going to talk to uh, the Chancellor Merkel, that uh, Chancellor Merkel is very happy with, uh, with um, the election of Emmanuel Macron. Uh, now what's at stake is to restart the Franco-German relationship relationship, uh, what we call the, the mother of Europe, uh, which has been a bit left aside over the last years with uh, under the Hollande mandate. So what really matters here is how can France and Germany finally come together uh, and make Europe uh, work again, I would say, make Europe great again, uh, I would dare to say. <laughs> Maxime, that was good. Make make Europe great again. Uh, I'm wondering how much the election of Emmanuel Macron has taken the pressure off the ECB, the European Central Bank, and sort of allowed them to consider uh, potentially reducing stimulus in the near term in a way that they might not have uh, should there have been some kind of political upheaval. Yeah, well, the, the ECB is surely relieved today to see that uh, that Emmanuel Macron won the presidency. Uh, that's one tail risk uh, less for them. So that means the economic outlook, um, which is improving again in the eurozone, if you look at the surveys, that the soft data is looking very good. Uh, they can now focus on the economic outlook on the short term without this uh, big political risk. Uh, what they're just looking at is core inflation. And core inflation is not picking up. It's still stable, weak. And uh, until uh, it picks up, they uh, aren't likely to move. We are expecting at the next meeting in June to them to say that the balance of risk on the economic outlook are now balanced, so not anymore tilted on the downside. But they will probably have to wait for September or December to start signaling a tapering in the QE purchases. And QE is likely to end mid next year at the latest. Uh, just give us a, a look, if you can, on the uh, the health of the corporate sector in terms of earning uh, profits and, and taxes in France, because that was always a big issue of increasing taxes on corporations. Will that change under Macron? 
Well, yeah, he has promised actually to uh, bring it uh, down from 33% to 25% over the next five years. So that's also why this, uh, his agenda has always been uh, labeled as pro-market, pro-business, is that because he has some very big plans on corporate tax uh, in France. All right, I want to thank you very much, uh, Maxine Sbahi. He is our Euro Area Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he uh, is uh, speak also speaking with um, our Lisa Abramowitz, who is enjoying some sun uh, in Amelia Island at the, uh, well, what is it, the 22nd Annual Financial Markets Conference, Indeed. Managing Global Financial Risks and Shifting Sands and Shockwaves. I wonder if you got, shifting sands, does that mean that you're going to stand on the beach when you yeah, talk exactly. about Yeah, exactly. It means taking long walks on the beach and contemplating uh, world policies. <laughs> well, ver ver you can do that with all the officials from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Thanks very much. A lot of takeovers, and as a result, I uh, want to get some expert thoughts on this from Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Shelley Banjo. She'll be speaking about Coach buying Kate Spade. That's a $2.4 billion deal. But I want to begin with Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Tara LaChapelle on this straight path uh, bidding war that seems to have erupted. Tara, tell us about what is so particularly special about straight path that the stock is up 32% today and we've got bidders who's name we don't officially know yet. Right. So Straight Path is a company that very few people really knew about before April. Um, they are one of the largest owners of five, of Spectrum that's approved for 5G use. So 5G is, of course, going to be the next network that all the wireless providers are going to want to have. So Verizon and AT&T both really need this. Now, AT&T struck a deal with Straight Path for, I believe, $1.6 back in April. Fast forward a month later, and you have this unnamed multinational telecom company, which is said to be Verizon, and makes a lot of sense of it as Verizon, um, that topped their bid by quite a substantial amount. They brought the bidding to $2.3 billion, and then today this same bidder bid against themselves, and now the price is $3.1 billion. So clearly, a lot of scarcity value in this company that very few people saw coming, Wait, but, I'm you sorry, know, Tara, Tara, did you say that it bid against itself? Essentially. So, uh, Straight Path already has an agreed-upon deal with AT&T, and they have to decide whether they drop this deal and go with this other bidder. So this other bidder is trying to make it so compelling that they have to do that and that AT&T won't be able to come back and top it. Although if you look at the trading today, uh, I believe Straight Path is trading through the implied offer price. So traders think this is going to keep going on. Well, yeah, the I was just going to say the shares of Straight Path, they're up uh, $52 a share of 214. That's a gain of 32%. You know, I have to say, you've got to, if you're talking about price action, you have to look at Coach and Kate Spade. Coach shares up uh, almost 6% and Kate Spade also up uh, more than 8%. And this is on the heels of talks that Coach is buying uh, Kate Spade. Uh, so Shelly Banjo is also in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. And Shelly, uh, how, how do you make sense of why the market is cheering just so much about this deal? Well, the, the shares have gone on quite a roller coaster ride over the past couple of years. It was trading at around $40 at one point, $45 at its all-time high. Went all the way back down during many months of speculation, December went all the way up to $25 as people were saying, or almost up to $25 as, as people were saying it could, it could fetch around even $30 a share for a deal price, and then tumbled back down after uh, earning, after a poor earnings show from Kate. In the end, um, as actually Tara pointed out to me this morning, it ended up 
it's selling for uh, its 200-day moving average. So go figure on on that one. Um, but you know, this is a good thing for Coach. They didn't overpay. Kate Spade can still kind of save its butt um, with its own shareholder saying it represents a 27. That's a technical term, by the way. Exactly. Uh, represented 27.5% uh, uh, premium from where it was trading before mar uh, media speculation in December. So I guess both sides are happy for that one. Uh, you know, Shelley, I just want to follow up. Why would Coach buy Kate Spade? Doesn't Coach already make handbags and aren't they just working on a big turnaround? Yeah, and so that's the thing. They're not buying Kate to like any kind of other merger where you'd sweep these assets under your, under your company umbrella and kind of you know mer actually merge these companies. Coach is on a totally different trajectory right now, trying to create a kind of mini conglomerate, uh, what I like to call a mini L LVMH, um, trying to trying to create this kind of house of brands where they're going to buy up lots of different companies and uh, manage manage them all. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't mention another big deal that uh, crossed the wire this morning. Uh, Sinclair is buying Tribune Media for $3.9 billion, um, yet more consolidation in the broadcasting space. Tara, uh, this was a long-awaited deal made possible by the U.S. FCC voting last month to ease a limit on uh, some of this consolidation. What do you expect the consequence is going to be, and is this a good thing for the companies? Uh, it's a good thing for the TV station owners. It's not such a great thing if you're Fox or CBS or any of the companies whose brands are behind these affiliate stations. It's going to make it a lot harder to negotiate the carriage deals. Um, but it's great for Sinclair, and I think it's just the first of many of these deals we could see. You still have Nexstar out there, which had looked at Tribune stations. Um, I think they could still do a deal. I think there's going to be a few more of these that follow this FCC decision for sure. Speak, if you can, about why you believe this is going to be a struggle for the actual network operators, uh, not the owners of the station, but the providers of content. Right. So, for instance, Fox, 28% uh, of their stations, so I think it's 14 of them in total, are actually owned by Tribune. So what happens is they have to work out deals with Tribune regularly about what the cost of carrying their content on these local stations is going to be. And so Fox obviously has a ton of negotiating power. All these big content companies do. But when these TV stations start to get bigger, obviously the pendulum swings again. So I think, you know, Fox had supposedly looked at this deal too um, in conjunction with Blackstone. And it's interesting that they let Sinclair sort of top them because you would think that Blackstone and Fox could knock out a bit if they wanted to. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, I guess they looked at the risk reward of letting Sinclair get these stations. And at the very least, they forced Sinclair to pay up. Thank you so much. This is uh, definitely helpful to get a sense of all of these deals and kind of putting them into perspective. It's Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Shelley Banjo, as well as Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Tara LaChapelle uh, talking about all of the deals uh, that we are seeing today. And we are seeing uh, quite a bit of price action in these shares as a result. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens.
Well, I'm honored to be here with Paula Tkach. She is a vice president and senior economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. And her job, in a way, is to go out and try to come up with the worst case scenario that could potentially derail markets and then translate that for all of the people at the Federal Reserve. And Paula, as you were designing uh, or helping to design this particular financial markets conference, the Managing Global Financial Risks, Shifting Sands and Shockwaves, what did you home in on as the biggest potential risk or some of the things that you're hearing from people in the market to the financial system at the the present? Well, Lisa, let me first say that it's probably... uh requires an army to do what you suggested, which is which is to think of uh, all of the things that, that might be risks uh, to the global financial system or to the U.S. economy or, or our system. Uh, in Atlanta, uh, the research staff and I, uh, the financial economists, um, try to design this conference every year to think about topics that are current, uh, but also in some way different or understudied. So br- try to bring some things to the surface that we think are relevant to market participants, but may not be talked about in ways that combine both a, a regulatory and a policymaking perspective with a market perspective. So as we thought about um, the topic for this year, um, we've been following, like everyone else uh, around the world, all of the events of the last year, and many of them are geopolitical, and there were always questions around what ramifications those geopolitical events might have in terms of uh, uh, Brexit, uh, U.S. fiscal policy, tax reform, French elections. And so as we started uh, planning the conference last year, these events were looming large, and we were starting to think about uh, ways to bring um, some different perspectives to bear on the issues related to global interconnections in the financial system. We all know that the global financial system is, in fact, global, but oftentimes, uh, I think, it can seem as though that only comes through large multinational financial institutions. And really what I think we learned from the crisis is it's really much richer than that. And so part of what we wanted to do with this conference was hit on sort of four main topics that we thought were um, important to, again, sort of rise up to the surface and give people um, some new perspectives on, including the issues of of international financial coordination. So not just where regulation is, but a more meta look at the degree of coordination or lack thereof and what kinds of challenges that well, Hold on one second, because this is really important at a time when it seems like it's unclear whether the Fed has full independence to have international coordination. And I'm not going to comment on any of that. <laughs> All right. Well, my, my co-host, Pim Fox in New York. Pim. Well, I just wanted to ask, Paula, you're going to be speaking about China's model of managing the financial system. And for those that are not going to be able to attend, I'm wondering if you could just offer some details and what some of the takeaways would be. Okay. So I'm, I'm actually moderating a session tomorrow. It's, it's one of our research paper sessions. Uh, and that session is going to include the presentation uh, of a paper that's going to talk about a way to theoretically model um, how a government might intervene when it's concerned about market volatility. And again, the paper motivates itself, the authors of the paper motivated as um, uh, potentially applying to China. We think it's a more broad issue in terms of thinking about uh, the role that a policymaker or a policymaking institution or a government might have uh, in sort of understanding the responses to any policies that they might put out uh, and any potentially activist interventions and how that might feedback through financial systems and, and try to get a better understanding of whether um, a policymaking objective would actually 
uh, be successful once we consider feedback effects. So I'm not going to speak about uh, the paper in particular, but the session, um, the, both the presenter and the discussant will talk about some issues uh, related to how governments might intervene and then again how they might sort of um, try to understand whether those interventions are successful in reducing volatility or in promoting growth. When you talk to people in the market, and just to be clear, there are people here across the board, big money managers, pension fund managers, insurance company managers, I mean, this is uh, definitely a, a diverse crowd of, rep of, of people from different parts of the market. When you talk to them, are they more concerned than ever about China and about potential unseen risks coming from overseas? I can't speak to whether they're more concerned than ever, but certainly I, among my colleagues, I think we're hearing uh, a lot of concern and a, and a lot of um, uncertainty, I suppose, um, related to um, what role um, the China sort of plays in the U.S. in the world financial system, uh, and sort of trying to get better perspectives on how to, again, think about any policy making that would come out of the Chinese government and what ramifications it might have. And so part of what we wanted to do with this conference was bring in things that, that financial economists oftentimes don't think about in an academic setting or sometimes even a policy making setting, and that's geopolitical events and political objectives and motivations and actions. Those are not our specialty. And so partly what we wanted to do was get people here who could speak to those issues uh, and bring it into the world of, of financial markets and financial stability so that we might have a better understanding of, of whether or not um, um, the risks that you hear people float all the time uh, are, are substantive. Uh, are they things that you could hedge? Are they things that you should think about, whether you're a market participant or potentially a policymaker? Because it's, it's, it's important for us um, at the staff level in terms of trying to understand uh, the U.S. economy and the financial system to understand how market participants think as it is to think about um, the, the conceptual underpinnings of any sort of policy um, that we might be discussing. Uh, Paula Tkach, thank you so much for joining us. Truly a pleasure, and uh, this is really uh, quite an incredible uh, event. So thank you again. Paula Tkach is a vice president and senior economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta here at Amelia Island. Well, over the weekend, the uh, capitalist uh, love fest was taking place in Omaha, Nebraska, and Bloomberg's own Noah Buhayer was there. This is the annual meeting of uh, Berkshire Hathaway and in attendance, of course, uh, Warren Buffett and uh, Charlie Munger. And this is what he had to say about the investment world. Charlie Munger said the investing world is just a morass of wrong incentives, crazy reporting, and I'd say a fair amount of delusion. Noah, uh, was that kind of the theme? for the uh, for the day uh, well Charlie certainly does have a way with words I mean he's uh, he's known for his blunt assessments I, it was it was one of the themes I mean that's that's uh, that was in response to um, a question or there was a whole section of the meeting that was talking about uh, uh, the fees that uh, active managers charge and you know, Buffett uh, has been talking about this a lot. Um, it's been he's been doing it for years, but uh, his annual letter was had a five-page passage on how active managers as a whole uh, really aren't delivering any value. And um, Munger sort of backed him up at the meeting, and that 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 quote was uh, was. Uh, uh, sort of his appraisal of, of what the investment management business is, 
you know, some of the problems they have. You know, it's interesting. So Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have been uh, beating on this theme for a while, as you talked about, that, that a lot of the asset managers, particularly hedge funds, active managers, uh, are overpaid. Um, and they even had Jack Bogle there, right, who is the founder of in, uh, indexing as the former head of Vanguard. Yeah, and he got a standing, he got a standing applause. Yeah, he got standing applause, right? And he gave some comments, and I thought that they were fascinating because he said, theoretically, if everybody indexed, it would be chaos. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that? Yeah. Well, I think that's a that's a great question. Um, if my recollection is right, I, I I think I think we'd have to get to a greater level of indexing before we'd see that. Yes, and he said there was 0% chance of it. So, like, to be clear, Mm -hmm. at the same time, the the sort of implicit understanding is that uh, you need some level of active management in order to make indexing work. Right, right. And I think even even Bogle said that he felt that, in particular, in some areas, including municipal bonds, for example, you needed active management. So, you know, the the, the ball was moved forward, sort of uh, creating more of a nuanced look at active versus passive. Yeah, and I think Buffett, uh, in fairness, has a, has a nuanced perspective on this, too. I mean, a lot of people say, well, wait a second, this is a guy who himself is an active manager. I mean, he's got a stock portfolio where he is making decisions on individual securities, and a lot of his track record over, over time has been because he is an active manager. Um, the argument that Buffett's making is, is a more global one, and he's saying that, yes, obviously it's possible for active managers to outperform, but as a whole, it really is uh, a zero-sum game, and as an industry, uh, investment uh, professionals are not adding any value, um, though it is possible to go find a money manager who's going to do right for you and um, deliver more value than, than their fee. Well, he also gave the uh, comparison, I believe, of how much the two top stock pickers at Berkshire, Ted Weschler and, to- and Todd Combs, make. The- he- they manage about $20 billion between them. They get a million dollars a year in salary plus bonuses uh, based on whether they beat the S&P 500. And he gave the example that said if you have a billion-dollar fund and you get 2%, even for terrible performance, you're going to get $20 million. He said in any other field, that would just blow your mind. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, look, Berkshire does things in a different way, and uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the things that uh, Weschler and Combs get to enjoy by working at Berkshire is they, you know, they don't have to deal with uh, limited partners. They they have a, a, a stable source of capital that they get to invest, and you know, they're doing uh, what they love to do, which is analyze securities within the co- the context of, of Berkshire Hathaway. So. Um, there, there's a trade-off there, even though they're getting paid less uh, than they could make if they were still running hedge funds. They, um, they do get a lot of benefits. Noah, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Warren Buffett's comments about United as well as Wells Fargo. I mean, he had some pretty harsh words for both companies, uh, saying that, for example, United made a, quote, terrible mistake with the clash uh, with the passenger that was videotaped. Um, have you ever heard in recent memory Warren Buffett kind of give mea culpas like this or talk about the shares that he held in the companies uh, with such harsh criticism? Uh, yeah, he does it from time to time. I don't. I don't think he's he's trying to um, defend managements when when he thinks they they mess up. Uh, there's a difference though um, between saying something and changing his appraisal of the economics of a business. I think what we saw over this last week is he actually came out and said, 
he thinks uh, differently about IBM's business model, and, and therefore he actually sold some shares. Whereas with, with Wells um, and with United, uh, there's really no indication that he's like trying to get out of those positions, that he's, he's fundamentally changed his view about the economics of, of, of those businesses. And, and I think that's an important distinction. Noah, what were some of the other topics, uh, or even in your conversations with people attending uh, this annual meeting? What was it, 40,000 people at least? Uh, yeah, there are a lot of people there. Though a lot of people were there just to shop. They don't uh, necessarily make it into the arena to, to listen to Buffett and Munger. But uh, one of the other huge themes was uh, the the sort of mea culpa that Buffett issued about not getting in on, on tech earlier, which I think is just uh, hugely important. If you look at the biggest companies in the world by market value, the, actually the five that are only five that are bigger than Berkshire, they're all tech companies. And uh, I think there was, a, uh, there was a lot of conversation over the weekend about what that meant, whether, and, 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 and Buffett talked a lot about how, uh, you know, he had had to change his thinkings, and he actually apologized to shareholders. He, he said he, he was capable, he had the ability to understand Google a lot earlier um, for a variety of reasons, and he just didn't. And, um, you know, at this point, Buffett's got to find investments. He's got to either buy companies or find the, the, the companies that are going to get really big tomorrow and put Berkshire's dollars to work in them. And uh, he really did miss the boat on tech. Noah Buhayar, thank you so much for joining us. Noah, Noah is our uh, Warren Buffett reporter, as well as uh, generally the uh, insurance industry. Uh, Noah comes to us from Seattle, and he is a reporter for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.